ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Jonathan Webb and this is Not Quite the Science Show. It's another special summer bonus download. And today I'm looking back on the year in health news with a few of the top medical minds from my team in the science unit. I'm joined by health reporter Paige Coburn. G'day, Paige. G'day. And co-presenter of The Health Report and our shiny new health podcast, newish, What's That Rash? Hello, Tegan Taylor. Hello, J-Dub. Let's start with a group of drugs that were all the rage. They're called GLP-1 antagonists, but that's not really a name that most of us know them by. No, um, everyone knows Azempic now, which is just one of these GLP-1 agonists. There's a couple now. There's You might know Azempic, you might know Wegovi, Manjaro, Zabound. We try not to use drug names on the ABC too much because of, you know, promoting drugs reasons, but it's really hard to avoid these drugs. Most of them, the ones that I just listed, are designed for diabetes. But this past year, we've seen this enormous explosion in the fact that they can also help people lose weight, which is something a lot of people are very interested in knowing a bit more about. And the more they research them, there seems to be maybe other effects that they have as well. So what is a GLP-1 agonist? Like, and how, where does this dual use come from, that it's useful for diabetes, but everyday people, based on you know social media trends and gossip, have started to use them to lose weight? Yeah, it has to do with insulin and your blood sugar, which is, of course, something that we know is involved in diabetes. The GLP-1 stands for glucogen-like peptide. And basically, when um, your blood sugar starts to rise after you eat, it sort of mimics the action of this GLP-1 hormone in the body. It tells your body to produce more insulin, lowers your blood sugar levels, helps control type 2 diabetes. But along with that, that hormone kind of cascade that happens when you eat and when you're full is really intertwined with your feelings of like satiety. So maybe not being hungry at all, as well as controlling blood sugar. So it can effectively reduce your appetite. Yeah, exactly. Uh, also, <laughs> these drugs have side effects, and one of these side effects is sometimes nausea and gastrointestinal side effects, which sound yuck, and also are things that help you maybe not feel like eating very much. So it could be both of those things working together. And is it just a sort of off-label use that people have been trying to get hold of it and using it to reduce weight, or is there a kind of a legitimate go-see-a-doctor option here? Um, both of those things can be true. So in Australia, they're only really approved for diabetes management. There are weight loss specific versions of these drugs. One of them is approved in Australia, but not available in Australia. And so there are people who it is appropriate or their doctors feel it's appropriate to prescribe them these drugs for weight loss. Off-label prescription is something that happens quite a lot. It's not illegal. It's at the discretion of the prescriber to do that. But what we have seen is because there has been such a high demand for these drugs for weight loss, it has meant that there's been shortages. So people who need them for weight loss and people who need them from diabetes are both not able to access them. And it's something that the manufacturers are saying are going to continue into well into 2024. Right. So the shortages started early in 2023 and they are not going away. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned social media before. That has definitely been our big driver, TikTok. And, and I think that when we start talking about social media and weight loss, there's this sort of sense of maybe wanting to brush it off as being frivolous. But it is a way people get information. 
And it is, we live in a society that really lionises um, being at a certain size or weight loss. And so we shouldn't be surprised that people are really interested in this. And like I said, there are many doctors who have patients who they go, this is the right thing for this patient. So um, sort of implying that it's only good for people with diabetes and that people who want it for weight loss are being sort of frivolous or vain. Shallow, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, that's really quite oversimplistic. Yeah, right. You've seen this trend during the year as well, I guess, Paige, in your health reporting? Yes, I've been quite interested in how it's actually tied in with people who are going through menopause because a lot of women have been looking at it for that reason and um, there was a case of a woman who lost about 15 kilos by starting it because she was having weight gain through menopause. And and then the other side of it is more about the demand and how in Denmark this drug is going basically going to be what they grow their economy on. There's just so much demand that's coming through. So it's certainly an issue that's not going to go away. I'm sure we'll be talking about it into next year. Potential money spinner. I mean, if there's demand shortages and if they can figure out how to make more of it and sell more of it, potentially the drunk companies could be onto a winner here. One of them's Danish, I guess, if that's... That's right. Yes, exactly. Yes. There's another story that's not so much a trend as a way of life these days that both of you obviously have done a lot of work on, the little coronavirus slash COVID pandemic. People got a bit sick of talking about it during 2023, but then interest kind of started to surge back up again towards the end of the year. Where are we at with COVID as we start 2024, Paige? It's been a relatively smooth sailing year, I guess, up until recently, because we've had some new strains come through, um, Parola and, and Kraken, as they've been come to known. And Kraken. Yeah, good one, that one. And they're close relatives of Omicron, though, so they didn't really pose new or, or grave risks that weren't already present. The chief health officer said it was business as usual and we'd built up enough immunity through infections and vaccinations. But shortly after that, the eighth wave came in hard and just in the lead up to Christmas, experts warned that if we did nothing over that period into the new year in February, that millions of people would become infected. But the thing with this wave is that we're quite blindfolded. We can't see how many infections are out there very reliably. We're just using wastewater, we're using scripts for antivirals, and we're using COVID-related hospital admission numbers to see how many people are actually infected. It's a tricky one, and it's compounded by the fact that people are very sick of talking about this, which I completely understand. And... I spoke a lot with social scientist Julie Leask about this and where people's minds are at. And this year signalled a bit of a change. She said that it was really a time where people decided COVID was something in their past and it wasn't something that they wanted to think about. They wanted to move past it. Tegan, are you sick of talking about it yet? I mean, we wound up the wildly successful Coronacast towards the back end of the year, just as the eighth wave was really starting to take off. How are you feeling about it all? Jonathan, I have been sick of talking about COVID since late 2020. <laughs> but no, it's been it's been this rolling on thing. And I think in 2020, we were like telling ourselves it's a marathon, not a sprint. Like, you know, hang in there, everyone. I don't think any of us really understood how long it was going to go on for. And it's just so interesting, Paige, hearing you sort of talking about Julie Leask's research because she's been such a great voice throughout the pandemic. And just like people don't want to talk about it anymore, which makes perfect sense because a lot of people have been traumatised by lockdowns and all that sort of thing. But especially for people with long COVID, 
I think it can become really lonely because maybe they feel like they've been forgotten. Like, oh, we've dealt with this thing. It's not a thing anymore. Or people who are still kind of quite worried for their health because they have particular vulnerabilities, this sort of feeling of maybe being left behind. Yeah. Mm. And it's also, we can't let it fade too far from attention because ideally people would continue to get boosters. And there was a new vaccine not long before Christmas page. Yeah, that's right. That's been optimised to the current strains that are circulating and is now the preferred vaccine booster. But there's been a a lot of scepticism around uptake because other boosters, we didn't see very good uptake at all. And that's what's expected with this. And during the pandemic, we saw a lot of people have to get vaccinated because of work. And Professor Lisk told me that that's going to mean a lot of people become reluctant to get boosted because of a thing called psychological reactance, which is kind of a defence mechanism some people employ when they feel that their freedom is threatened. So for those who've had to get a vaccine to continue working, they're less likely perhaps to get boosted because they feel that their arm was kind of forced and they don't want to go back to that stage. So So is there a new tactic we should be using to try and encourage people to get their boosters? There's many ways, I guess, to get a health message out uh, and it's going to differ a lot between communities. A new booster campaign is probably on the cards, but how that will differ and if it will be any more successful than previous ones is yet to be seen because others have really fallen flat. And unfortunately, there's a lot of research that shows if money's tight, as it is for a lot of people at the moment with the cost of living, you're far less likely to get vaccinated because, especially because there's less bulk billing going on right now. So Mm. that's another complicating factor. Right. So another very big story in the medical world this year was a new kind of medicine. And a lot of research had been going on for a long time into whether drugs that have historically been illegal and associated with recreational highs, whether they could have mental health applications. And then suddenly, earlier this year, there was a quite significant change that kind of took people by surprise to the regulation in Australia. Tegan, you followed that story. It was a surprise to me, but I'm not a doctor. But then even in um, the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners news and that sort of thing, they were like, oh, no one saw this coming. So yeah, from the 1st of July, the TGA said it was okay to, <laughs> under very specific circumstances to use MDMA. So um, for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and psilocybin, which is of course the active compound in magic mushrooms for treatment resistant depression. That was a big surprise. And I think it's the sort of thing that gets a lot of media attention because people in the general public recognise these names and they're sort of illicit. Maybe they sort of associate them, like you say, with being like party drugs. And so it's like a kind of catchy headline. So maybe we saw a lot more about it than we would about other drugs that might have been like scheduled for for people. So if you think there was just a, a new compound that turned out to be useful for treating these incredibly intractable problems, it might not have got quite so many headlines. Exactly. So I think there is a little bit of that in the mix here. But like you say... Post-traumatic stress disorder, treatment-resistant depression, they're really gnarly mental health problems that are really, really hard to treat. So new things coming into the mix that might be options for people uh, really feel like a lifeline. So potentially really good news. What was the reaction from the sort of clinical community, the people that were going to be administering them? 
Uh, it depends on who you're talking to. There are some people who were very, very pro it. Uh, there's been people who have been campaigning for this uh, for a really long time. There have been people studying this in Australia for some years now. It's not actually that new. However, there were criticisms that the research quality that the decision was based on was low quality research. And there has been question marks around the other part of the therapy. So the therapy is, of course, the drug. And then it's also the therapy, the psychotherapy. And they've done a lot of research into the drugs themselves. And then there was an open letter that was published in one of the world's leading psychiatry journals, kind of querying the talk therapy that goes alongside it and saying that there's still a potential for harm there, especially when people are on drugs that make them so heightened, even making a, a small wrong move as a fallible human being, as the kind of person administering these drugs could have a bad effect on people. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there were people criticising the new rules because they thought they were too stringent. So there's a group yeah, called right. Australian Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Practitioners. They think it's too stringent. What they're saying is basically the regulations that have been put in place have made it almost unworkable. So on one hand, there's sort of caveats around it and that it needs to be approached really, really carefully. So of course, there's a lot of regulation. And on the other hand, there's sort of people going, well, no one can access it because the regulations are so stringent. So it's definitely hasn't been a smooth start. Mm. Um, but the other drug that um, I did cover this year that sort of sits in a similar family in people's minds, at least if they're thinking about recreational use, is ketamine. And um, a really low-cost version of ketamine that is easily available in Australia could also be a potential treatment for treatment-resistant depression. It's available in Australia. We were talking about off-label prescription before. We were talking about weight loss and um, diabetes drugs. Mm. This sort of ketamine costs like $5 a dose. If a hospital's buying it wholesale, it's used as an anaesthetic. So it's already here and it's cheap. But because it's cheap, the way that drugs are sort of approved in Australia for specific uses relies on there being like a commercial interest, someone who can sponsor the drug to be approved in Australia. And so no one's kind of going to be interested in sponsoring, being the commercial sponsor for a drug that's already here and already cheap. So I suppose the takeaway from this is that for this really awful form of depression, there isn't a silver bullet, but there's definitely a lot more glimmers of hope on the horizon. Just quickly, a couple more stories that each of you thought were interesting this year to touch on before we finish. Page saunas, saunas—they're so hot right now. Are they having? Are they having a moment? Good one. I'm a sauna user, and I'm I'm definitely having a moment with them. So that kind of urged me to <laughs> look further into it. Um, and I have noticed—we're talking about social media before—and I have noticed that there's a lot of claims about sauna use on. On socials, whether it's, you know, expanding your life or helping you lose weight. So I did a bit of investigating and, um, you know, basically when you're in a sauna, your body is reacting to the heat and the physiological response is mimicking what you experience during exercise. And, and yeah, research has shown that that can improve your heart function. So that all sounds good. The research doesn't show exactly that it's going to prevent cardiovascular issues. So that's an important point to make. Um, but it has been likened to maybe, you know, some low, moderate exercise, doing some exercise on a stationary bike, for example. Right. But so you're kind of cheating your way to 
some of the things that exercise would give you by well, just sitting in a hot place. Yeah, that's how I read it. And I was like, great, I'm not going to go for a run ever again. I'll just sit in a sauna for 45 minutes. That is not what they're saying you should do. You should keep exercising, basically, because that mimicking is on a low level. But interestingly, if you do go in a sauna after a workout, um, you are much likely to have fitness gains, lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol, as opposed to if you do a workout and just get in the car and go home. So Interesting. Interesting. Tegan, your final story for the year was one that lots of people probably did hear about, but it was kind of remarkable. Yeah, I just, any excuse to talk about this story, um, I will seize upon. So I don't think anyone missed the story that happened in late August. A Canberra doctor pulled from a woman's brain an eight centimetre worm, and not just any worm in a brain, but a <laughs> worm that's that's usually found in carpet pythons and small mammals. And so it was this incredibly gross story of a woman who, uh, they believe she picked it up foraging for warrigal greens, probably the warrigal greens, you know, it's like a native green. It probably had some python poo on it. That might have been how she got infected. But part of the reason why that piqued my curiosity so much was because I had also been speaking separately to a different woman who'd had a similar experience where she had had a life-threatening kind of medical mystery happened to her that her doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. She was in incredible pain. She was having all sorts of nerve-related symptoms. And it turned out that she also had worms, a different kind of worm, something called a rat lung worm. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> so that's pretty gross. Uh, but when I dug a little bit more into it, those are worms that are specifically adapted to, uh, you wouldn't believe how many species of worms there are in the world. And there's there are different ones that are like uniquely adapted to different types of creatures. So that there was the one from the python, there's this rat lung worm that also sort of lives in slugs and snails. When they get into human bodies, human bodies hate it and it makes people really, really sick. But there's also pathogens that are uniquely adapted to the human body, like hookworms, which um, I think we could all agree the idea of a hookworm is disgusting. But there is a school of thought that maybe the fact that we have been so judiciously uh, and assiduously ridding ourselves of worms um, in our modern world means that maybe we're missing something. There's a team at James Cook University who is intentionally infecting people with hookworms to see if it stops people from being as likely to have autoimmune diseases wow. or even diabetes. That's out of left field. Yeah. Would you volunteer to uh, to be infected with hookworms for science? <laughs> it's for science. Maybe, if they promise they can get it back out again. Well, okay, so that is funny. So both of the participants in that study that I spoke to, at the end of the study, they didn't know if they were in the placebo group or not until the end. At the end, they both found out that they were in the active group. They had actually been infected with um, hookworms and they were offered deworming and they both declined. Oh. Voluntarily stuck with the worm. Yes. There yes. you go. Oh. It's been enlightening. Thank you very much both for joining me to review the past year in health news. Health reporter Paige Coburn and Tegan Taylor, co-presenter of the Health Report and our short-form health podcast, What's That Rash?, which is soon to be retitled What's That Worm? What's That Worm? <laughs> By the sound of things. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. That's it for this bonus episode of The Science Show. Robin Williams will be back next with a regular full episode. And then you'll hear from me again, looking back on the biggest science stories from the past year. I'm Jonathan Webb. Catch you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.